Hello and welcome to the Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Father Peter Mossett. And my name is Scott Powell. And, and his name is Scott Powell. Yes, it is. And his <laughs> name is Father Peter Mossett. <laughs> and we are so happy that you joined us on this, at least in Colorado, this chilly almost fall day it's so weird because it's it's like it's like snow and it feels like snow in summer without fall it's the weirdest set of um, it's literally what it is (laughs) we had a big snow in boulder colorado yesterday and it's not warmed back up it's still pretty chilly today there's trees down all over town it's cloudy and dreary and sad the whole western part of the country is apocalyptically orange in color. <laughs> and red. Oh my gosh! Did you see the pictures of Oregon? I was like, I was like, man, if if you if you had any fear about the the eschaton, <laughs> yeah, or like you that, you, you, in... you're like, what the? I saw. Um, this is more specifically to Colorado, but I saw this picture. This was an actual weather photo, and I'm showing it to Father Peter. I had to take a screenshot of it because it was one of the more 2020 <laughs> things I'd seen. It's a it's a weather photo of Colorado, <laughs> and half the state would, uh, yeah, on each end of the state. There's big red things that say fire, and then a line <laughs> down the middle that says snow. <laughs> just fire and snow <laughs> it's one of the more absurd pictures well that and, and it it's, says a lot and it's red and blue so it feels a little bit political i just have to say like it i just... think i found it on labor day which was it was very patriotic <laughs> well anyway. it's, it's uh the 24th sunday in ordinary time we're gonna it go is. through today yeah it is so our first reading this week is coming from the book of sirach not isaiah even though you claim that it's Isaiah every week. <laughs> I this know. betrays did, you. Did you want to put an A on the name of the book? Sriracha? Oh, Sriracha, which you don't like. You don't like hot sauce. I don't like hot sauce. You used hot sauce today. I did and, use and, hot sauce. And it lit you up at one point. You like literally like, boo, like your eyeballs like start, got the little spirals in them. Because the, I also put too much pepper on came. it. <laughs> and then there was the hot sauce and it was a little too sweet. And so I kept putting more on thinking it would give me more of a kick. <laughs> you know, it was one of those things. Sometimes a, your eggs work out, sometimes they don't. They don't so Sirach, so Sriracha, uh, Sirach chapter 27, verse 30 through 28, verse 7. Then our psalm is Psalm 103, mm. verses 1 through 4, and then 9 through 12 That's with true. the response from 8a. That's true. Very good. Yeah. Uh, our second reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. And then the gospel is uh, the Matthew 18, 21 to 35. I like that you're putting articles in front of everything. Oh, <laughs> the Matthew. The Matthew. You know what it is? Is It's because I've been... Um, I've been going through the Greek. I've been like looking at Greek all morning, and okay. there's something about having articles in Greek that make it <laughs> makes it a lot easier to me than than Latin, which has hey, no Matthew. articles. <laughs> Sirach, Father Peter, is one of the deuterocanonical books of the Bible. Dude, deuterocanonical books, <laughs> which means uh, a number of things. We've talked about the deuterocanonical books like every uh, every day. No, not every we don't single, have Isaiah every, every day. Single and time, we haven't talked about the deuterocanonical every single books time every day. we don't have Isaiah. We have a deuterocanonical book. That's not true. <laughs> oh, this is driving me crazy. Your hyperbole, your hyperbole is getting me today. It's <sighs> yeah, fine. No, it's actually right. You know what? I was, I was, I was. Up. The gospel is very hyperbolic, and so maybe it's already got me on edge. Yeah, I was, I was trying to sleep, and and I was like trying to solve the world's problems, <laughs> in, as as I was like waking up through the night and. And I realized that one of the keys to solving our, the world's problems right now is to it, read this passage from Sirach. Not hyperbole. It's it's actually moving away from hyperbole into distinction. I don't know because Jesus uh, does the opposite. Jesus uses hyperbole in a in a pretty um, to to some pretty powerful effect. I think in today's gospel. Well, yes, but I was just thinking. Well, I was just thinking. It's it's simple versus complex. Like okay. mo- moving Fair from enough. from the just absolute singular basic agendas into actually allowing complexity and distinction to enter in. That was what I really was thinking. Well, about. No, I, I I we don't have time to get into that, but I do think that is the key to. Our political strife and our social strife and our our social media strife that we we don't allow for nuance. Right. That well, yes, the, I, I do think that, but I I do also it's it's all the exceptions to grammar rules. But right. I mean, I I firm. I, yeah, there's there's so much we could go. Okay. On. Well, but so, but actually, okay, maybe that actually does apply to the first reading. 
because well, because I'm looking in the, our first line, it's just like it it lit me up about the contemporary world. Can I just say one quick word about Syrac to give us context before we? Well, I get we have to give context before we talk about what it is. Okay, and it's a really simple context. Yes. So the Deuterocanonical books were complex. <laughs> it's, it's simple. There's a simple distinction. I know. I'm just um, the Deuterocanonical books, partially why they're not accepted in our Protestant friends' Bibles or in Jewish Bibles, actually, even though they would have been books that Jesus would have read during his time, because we know the Bible that he used. Um, Sirach was not necessarily written, but compiled by these Jewish scholars who went up to Alexandria to write the Septuagint, which was the first uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament what we would call the proto-canon. And so while they were up there, there were a number of other books that they added in, which were oral, probably, traditions that had been being passed down. And so Sirach is one of those, and it's a grouping of wisdom sayings. And there's there's honestly not that much more context that we can give to Sirach other than it's a book kind of like the Proverbs. It's a series, it's not a narrative, or there's you know there's not this tightly constructed um, structure to it. It's, it's a group of wise sayings, um, it's it's sometimes called Ecclesiasticus, Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, which is a different book of the Bible, but Ecclesiasticus just means literally read in the churches. This is the book of things that are read in the churches sometimes, which is kind of cool. <laughs> but but that's important because even the ancient title suggests that its proper place was in the liturgy, right? It's meant to be read in the liturgy. And so sometimes it's called the the wisdom of Ben Sirah, which is where Sirach came from, I claim to not know. Um, so the, the son of Sirah, uh, and again, it's just a book of wisdom. It's kind of like the Proverbs. It's a collection of wise sayings that were probably for the first time translated from oral traditions into the vernacular when the Septuagint was being read. And we know that Jesus was using the version of the Bible that has Sirach. So it would have probably been a book that was read and known and studied by Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. That's my context. That's good. I like yeah, that context. Simple. I feel very good about that context. But this one, I, I, I don't... I, I almost didn't want to get into this because it's almost too obvious or too um, too fine a point on it. I, I couldn't get away from reading it. I just kind of read it again and again and again this morning thinking how utterly – the fact that this is our first – I almost wish it was coming a couple weeks from now because the fact that we are in the United States of America – deeply into one of the most contentious political environments seasons and election ever. seasons ever with and the 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 role the church is playing and the hatred within the church and the infighting and all of the stuff i don't think that in the providence of god you could have a more appropriate passage to give to the church at this moment in time and in history and in the calendar year. Absolutely. And so just to just to read it, to give you the sense of this, and again, read this against the backdrop of our current, again, not just political, although people are, I don't mean political in the sense of Republican, Democrat. I mean political in the sense that human beings who live in societies are political because we operate within systems and civilizations and we organize ourselves in certain ways. So I mean political in the broadest possible Greek Platonic sense of the word that this is we operate in the midst of other people, right? In a polis, you know the famous saying uh, that Jesus, um, where two or more are gathered in my name, there will be politics. That's <laughs> a first friend of mine says that. That's awesome. Which is good. So wrath and anger are hateful things. This is this is this is your entryway. This is your on ramp, right? You're thrown in. Wrath and anger are hateful things. This is the thing is that I the translation I actually don't like that. Oh, talk to me. Give me. I I only read the, the wrath NAD and anger. English. Also, these are abominations. 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 Ooh. In the context of the word, um, hateful or abomination is yeah. is actually against the sacred. Well, abomination suggests so hateful things can be abstracted. Abomination suggests well, who hates it? God hates it. Right. So abomination suggests that there's an an object to who hates these things. Right. Which is a lot more powerful than just they are in this abstract in void way hateful or right. God and- hates wrath and anger. You could translate this, right? Orge, orge, which actually I, I, it's, it's looked like ogre to me, so I oh, kept on, ogre. I kept on reading it as, <laughs> uh, as an ogre. There are so ogre things. Menis God hates kaya orge, and That's you're like, intense. you have wrath and anger. So, and... so read it the reverse way. God hates wrath and anger, yet the sinner hugs them tight. Yeah. The word hugs cling, cling to the. I, I like hugs as a translation. Yeah. 
Um, the vengeful will suffer the Lord's vengeance. Why? Because he hates them. For he remem- he doesn't hate them. He hates the hatred and anger that they hug tight. For well, he- and, and the Greek, it's interesting. It, listen to this. The one who takes vengeance from the Lord will find vengeance. The one who takes vengeance from the Lord will find vengeance. That is yeah. a roundabout way of saying that. Yeah. So like ah, stinking s- Greek saying like saying like like no, actually, there's a re- there's a recognition that there is the proper possession of vengeance is God's. Vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance ah, yes, is the right, Lord. Right. But like there's this sense of saying like, no, I mm. actually want to I'm going to seize what mm. real thick justice is going to be. Yeah. But but by doing that, I'm actually calling it down upon myself. I take, I, because I've taken onto myself what is rightly God's. Right. It's what we call hubris. This is what the Adam and Eve do in the garden. They take, they grab after what is only God's. So well, I love the fact that you bring in Adam and Eve because there's. I, I actually think that as we're going through, there is a trajectory of dealing with something so much deeper than we were expecting the Lord to be dealing with when we start to go into the gospel. Okay, 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 okay. It's it's actually very interesting, and I can see that you have a point that's actually close to the point that I'm making, but later on. It's it's at least parallel, but we'll find out. (laughs) It seems parallel. Hopefully it's not perpendicular. Or tangential. Yeah, or... uh, Obtuse. Hyperbolic. Um, (laughs) Forgive your neighbor's injustice. Forgive your neighbor... Let's just say that one more time, because... This is the this is the kind of thing that we have come to expect the Bible to say. Oh, forgive people, forgive. But think of it in terms of the politics of our day. Forgive your neighbor's injustice. Not just look the other way. Recognize there's real fault. There's real evil. There's real sin in the yes. world. And forgive it. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. Don't whitewash it away. Call it out. And then forgive it because it's not your job to punish or to damn the people that are around us. But it's also not our job to pretend everything's great. Right. And this is where like, like I've just been watching like Scott, I I kept thinking back to the time when you, when you and I were having conversations about how we've moved from the age of relativism into mm. absolutism. Uh, I, believe, I do believe that. And like, like the good old days of relativism. Yeah, <laughs> relativism and days to- of relativism. Of tolerance and yeah, relativism. We don't tolerate anything anymore. No, exactly. It's it's totally an intolerant age. It is. And uh, and so so this is the this is this is directly flies in because the face tolerance of, was never sustainable. No, no. And like, relativism was never sustainable. They all had to land somewhere. Exactly. And now it's just and now it's an absolutism based right. in whatever people choose to base it. A on. different set of absolutes than the Judeo-Christian world has given us. As long as it's different from the, the absolutes, as long as yes. it's not Judeo-Christian absolutes, then That's we true. can really do anything okay. right now. That's okay. it's really kind of anything but mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. But but uh, I don't know what point I was making. I don't know either. But forgive your enemies' injustice, your your neighbor's injustice. Oh, it doesn't say enemy. It says well, your neighbor. Your neighbor, because I've been looking and seeing how the trajectory of culture is getting more and more merciless. Yes. Um, oh, um, this is this, this is why we. This I will argue up and down. This is our fundamental societal problem: is that there is no room. There's no room for Christianity. Because there's no room for mercy in our culture. We right. have no room for the concept of mercy. And quite frankly, I think Christians tend to be the least merciful people oftentimes. So we're not doing ourselves any favors. Right. But th- that's absolutely right. But the good news about it, I suppose, if you can call it good news, is that what Sirach is reminding us of is, yeah, that's not new. There's nothing particularly novel about our age, except maybe we're worse or we figured out new, more diabolical or more tech-savvy ways to do it. But it's not new, or else these words wouldn't have had to be said when they were. Um, forgive your neighbor's injustice, for when you pray, your own sins will be forgiven. Then when you pray, your own sins will be forgiven. Can anyone nourish anger against another and expect healing from the Lord? We go to confession, we go to mass, we pray that the Lord will be merciful to us, but we have no capacity for mercy unto anyone else. And Sirach is like, that doesn't work. Think about that for a second. Um, can anyone... it's, it's like the Lex Talionis, um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, yeah. and which is, I love the famous quote. Hammurabi's Code. Hammurabi's Code. Yeah. yeah. 
is in, in the midst of that, then the world becomes blind and toothless. Right. It's like, and versus the, if I feel like you see that bumper sticker a lot. Yeah. I There's do. a good bumper sticker that it says is, it's yeah. Gandhi. I think Mahatma Gandhi said that. It is Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah, but like, but I love the, the, the reality of saying, no, we cannot live that way. Right. Um, I'm going to make a case. I guess I'm going to give away something. I'm going to make a case. Give that it away. No. <laughs> nice noise i'm gonna give a make a case that i think and whether he's doing it explicitly or impl- he's doing it implicitly whether whether it's meant to be there or i'm just seeing something uh the story that jesus tells the parable that jesus tells in the gospel today is a retelling of all of salvation history from the time of egypt up past babylon I and it is it- so specific and so distinct and so, ooh, I would actually even argue that, it, it, yes, the specific distinctness, yeah. but I think that it's actually going to the roots of our uh, of our inability f- um, for us to actually have relationship. I mean, this it, literally, I, I actually think that it goes back all the way to Cain and Lamech. It pro- Lamech, I mean. Lamech. Oh, oh uh, he, Lamech is brought in explicitly. Right. There is an explicit reference to Lamech, which takes us all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. That, the, absolutely. But the reason I, I say the Exodus, and th- this applies here. I'm not getting ahead of ourselves as much as I seem like I am. The reason this applies is that the, the principle or the concept of the Jubilee is what comes out of the Exodus period. And, and it's in the Exodus period that God, who was, rede- who was revealed to be creator— and a sustainer throughout Genesis is then given a new, we are given a new phase of revelation of who God is in the Exodus period. And this is where God is revealed as not just creator, not just sustainer, but he's revealed as redeemer, that God sets free, God forgives, God releases. And so it's out of the story of the Exodus when we, the people of God, were enslaved and indebted and landless and homeless. God releases us from slavery, frees us from our debt, and gives us a home to be in. And the the request that God makes, and it shows up in the book of Leviticus explicitly, that if I have done this for you, and if you recognize what I have done for you, you were indebted and enslaved and homeless. I gave you a home, I released you from slavery, and I forgave all of your debt, spiritually, physically, monetarily, and otherwise. You have to do it for each other. And if you can't do it for one another, then you have not truly seen what I've done for you. This is a principle, maybe the most important principle that comes out of the Exodus period, where they're commanded, remember, every seven years to release debts, to set free slaves, and to let land, homeland, lie fallow, which is the command that is not followed throughout the whole course of salvation history up until you get the climactic moment in the Babylonian exile where God says, look, you've ignored my command that you set free slaves, release debt, and give people back their homes. And because you have not understood the entire trajectory of salvation history from the Exodus on, God says in Jeremiah, I'm going to release you, play on words, back into slavery, back into indebtedness, and I'm going to take away your home. Not because I'm mad and I'm wrathful and angry and mean as a god, but because you never learned the lesson of salvation history to begin with. And if you can't actually see the need for mercy in your own society and the people around you, then it tells me that you've never really understood my mercy to begin with. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which is the story that he tells in the gospel. It's the parable of the king and the person who had the ridiculous debt. But we'll get there. But, but I digress. We are getting ahead yeah, of ourselves. Yeah, I mean, but it, that's what Sirach is saying. Sirach, right. I think, is tapping into what should be this deeply held uh, cultural Israelite reference point of the Exodus is when God showed us in a way that nobody ever dreamed of how merciful and forgiving and releasing he is. And if we can't do that back to one another and the people around us, do we actually understand God? Do we have any relationship with God really if we don't see that? Which is what uh, Sirach is getting to. Yeah, and I just keep on seeing the the heart of the Our Father. I mean, this is just Which like... is an Exodus prayer. Fundamentally, it's a Absolutely. prayer recounting each stage of the Exodus. So right. you can't... Uh, you can't, um, they're inextricable. You can't separate these things from one another. Because again, this is the whole Israelite ethos. Right. And the problem of salvation history, the problem of Israel in the Old Testament, is that they forget what makes them them. And what makes them them is a sort of 
powerlessness and a deference to a God who is powerful, who we see ourselves in light of, who doesn't need to take up arms and fight against any any comers against us, who doesn't need to form military alliances and put our faith and our trust and our power and our money in a bunch of things that are not God, because we are a bunch of nobodies that God redeemed and made into somebodies. Not because of our own power, not because of our own influence, not because of our own wealth or military prowess, but only because of God and his greatness and his mercy towards us. And every time throughout the course of salvation history that Israel tries to make herself something else or something that's all about Israel, she falls flat on her face and ultimately gets taken away into exile again, which I think brings us to the psalm. I, I don't know how, but I, uh, because I mean, I, I mean, it, I, the, the connection that I was making is Please. that, is that it's um, like, I'm just trying to move us forward. Yeah. Gr- well, gr- gratitude is, is the quickest way out of vengeance. Gratitude is the, say that again. Gratitude is the quickest way out of vengeance and anger. Okay. Yeah. B- because, okay. because what is, what is anger, but it's, it's the uh, passion that arises within the human person to overcome a perceived injustice. Okay. It's the okay. passion that arises. Which can have a good place. There can be a morally positive sense right. to that. Right. So, so that's the morally neutral yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. definition. Sirach is actually trying to, to, like, when he defines the anger within the context of wrathfulness, yes. which is an undue, uh, an undue desire for revenge upon one's... Vengeance, which yeah. is God's and God's alone. Right. We don't so, have the power to give final judgment on someone's soul. God and God alone does. Right. But we are a culture who loves passing the final judgment on people. Right. And that's that's why the 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 when we were talking earlier about how we take and we say, I'm going to actually name what I see uh, so that I'm not just caught in anger mm-hmm. in my own perception. Because Thomas would always, he would say, um, it's a perceived injustice. So you actually have to do work yeah. to confirm mm-hmm. whether or not a real actual injustice is, is present. But but once you get into that level of rationality, now you're actually starting to move away from from um, from getting caught up in the passion of anger. I mean, like literally, I feel like this is the like this Sirach was the Jedi's code. You know what I'm saying? It, like, it, it, totally. Like no, but but this is the thing that that I, that I'm that I'm seeing is I'm saying, oh, if if you get caught up and lost in the irrationality of anger and not actually rooting it in what's real. And that's why the psalm is actually really important is because we have to reroute in the realities of who God is. Otherwise, we get caught up but, into taking what is proper to God. But Sirach takes it further. I mean, you're right. That's true. But Sirach asks something more of us than that. Like you said, the whole Thomistic idea of coming to, you know, figuring out what is real but if a real injustice does actually exist, and that is what we discern through and actually come to the conclusion of, Sirach actually says, we must forgive it. He doesn't see, say, forgive your neighbor's perceived injustice. He says, no, real, actual, legit injustice. Which, forgive it. Which moves us actually past the psalm into <laughs> the Romans. But the psalm, the, the one thing we should say about the psalm, though, is that Um, If Sirach is pointing toward what is not our jurisdiction and what is God's jurisdiction, the kind of maybe default position is to say, well, God's going to make him pay. Like, fine, I will take the the posture of forgiveness because I know that they're going to get hosed when God gets to them, right? And we'll let God deal with it and let him burn, you know. And the psalm is like, no, you've still must understood who God is because God is merciful kind, merciful, slow to anger, rich in compassion. Like, you know, whatever I, I always think of. So as we go through the Psalm, like he deals, he heals you and he pardons your sin. I always think of like, I don't know where this came from, but I remember talking about it a lot in seminary and mm-hmm. thinking about it a lot. Like, are you so mad that something bad has happened to you? And look how much you've actually gotten away with in your life. Oh, that and you've, and you've, that and, line sums up all of these readings. Right. Say that again. That that actually is the takeaway from all of this. Right. Like say it again though. Like see how much you've gotten away with in your life. What was the first part though? The first part's crucially important. R- right. And you're mad that something bad is happening to you. Yeah. But but this but thing think is of all the things. But that, think of all the things like the which truth is, is that you have so much mercy in your life because you so haven't abundant. gotten away with anything. Right. A God saw it, recognized it, and was merciful toward you. 
because we write off our lives as though we just got away with a bunch of stuff. Right. And we don't perceive a God who is so intimately involved in our lives and in our world that, no, he chose to allow me to be free of that thing that I did that I shouldn't have done, that I should have experienced grave consequences for. Lasting consequences. He chose to allow me to be free of that. I didn't get away with anything. Exactly. And that's the perspective that Sirach and the psalm and the gospel really are asking us to have on the world. And remember the psalm, this is a psalm of David in this tradition, which means David who had a hard go at it and had, I mean, if we put it in terms of salvation history and the story of David, um, presumably after the king of Israel sought his life for decades when he had already been anointed and had to hide in the desert and hide behind rocks and in caves like, you know, a, a pathetic lawbreaker or peasant or whatever he was, when he knew, in fact, he was the anointed king of Israel, David's posture toward Saul is one of mercy and one of compassion and one of saying, I don't want to take vengeance on you, even though you are trying to kill me for being the rightful king of Israel. So for David to write those words, it's not like, oh, that's a nice, pious, abstract idea. You're like, yeah, no, you lived it, man. You actually had someone seek your life and try to kill you unjustly. There was an injustice done to David, and he dealt with it for decades. And now he can write, no, I understand who God is. And I could actually have freedom in that. I don't have to hate Saul. I don't have to put Saul to death. Saul died of his own bad choices. But you know what I mean? Putting it in right. the context of a guy's life who's like, yeah, no, you put your money where your mouth is, yeah. is significant. Well, Which takes us to Romans. Yeah. Speaking of putting your yeah. money where your mouth is. I mean, I just, it's interesting. It's like, I, I think that we're, we're um, promoting stories and meditations culturally right now that don't do the merciful thing like Saul and David. Mm. Like, mm. like of uh, of people d doing little petty vengeances, and and oh. and like and, and meditating and amplifying and yes. and kind of like getting stoked up for a for a bigger fight. Oh, like yeah. like and I just see oh, yeah. all of these people rather than rather than this thing of saying like, no, there's something rightful. How how do we how do we make sure that we're um, that we're utilizing what we're perceiving in mercy because it, it's almost as if it's almost as if we, everybody stopped trying to convince each other of anything. Yeah. It's just yelling at each other and mocking each other and right. getting each other's faces right. to and, and, and doing so as to destroy things. each other. Right. Because we don't want each other. We don't want to share fellowship with one another. We don't want to heal our culture. I, I use we in the most generic sense of the term, but I think a lot of people don't want to heal our culture. We hate so much, and we have othered each other so much. We don't want reconciliation. No. We want vengeance. We right. want punishment. We want those guys over there to pay. Right. Which is exactly what Sirach is saying. Hey, if you feel that way, stop it, because you haven't actually understood who God is. Right. But that is where we are. Right. And it doesn't matter what the perceived slight is or the actual slight. Which leads us into Romans. How? None of us lives for oneself and no one dies for oneself. Now, the context of this is um, Paul is actually going through. The context through, is very important. Is vegetarianism and uh, carnivorousness. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. You know, I mean, like, like as, as we're looking. It's not vegetarianism by choice. No, it's, it's, it's about abstaining or having meat in relationship to idols, worship, and stuff. I don't think so, actually. So, well, yes, yes, absolutely. Or, or is it? Well, that's well, actually, so I, I didn't go back far enough to understand. But, I mean, it was, it was like, if no, you want to eat vegetables, then why are you free? Freaking out, and then, yeah. but then you don't have to despise them because they're vegetarians, and 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 you don't have to be superior to these people because they eat whatever. Right, right, right. Like you, you guys have to like really be careful. Just because you are making these choices, it doesn't put one person above another, and you don't get to have condescension in your midst. And again, this is the letter to the Romans, which we've been talking about for weeks, which is not written in a vacuum. It's not. It, it's not the abstract theological principles. It's about real people in a real parish having real problems ethnic things, Jew, Gentile, Christian, who's better than who. The Jewish people, remember, we've talked about uh, the, all the Jewish people were expelled from Rome by the Emperor Claudius, which meant they were all kicked out of town, which meant that the church during those years when Claudius expelled all the Jews because they were fighting over the Messiah, and apparently those fights got violent and reached the ears of Caesar, 
the church was then taken over by Gentile leadership, non-Jewish leadership, because they were the only ones left. And then when Nero eventually allows the Jews to come back, and I think 64 AD or something like that, um, they're like, okay, we're ready to take back over. Like, we'll, we'll take over the leadership of the church now. And the Gentiles are like, who do you think you are? You got yourselves kicked out. And they're like, right. well, what about you guys? You shouldn't even been here in the first place, blah, blah, blah. If the Jewish people had all been expelled from the city of Rome for, I think it was five or six years, when they come back, there are no kosher meat sellers. There are no kosher stores. There is no Jewish infrastructure that allows food to be prepared and eaten the way that the Jewish law mandates that it be prepared, which means that you could see how the Jewish people, while they're trying to rebuild their lives, might have to stop eating meat because it might not be kosher. It might have been offered to an idol, you know, to Apollos or something in some temple. And what Paul is saying, if you you don't have to read between the lines at all, he, he quotes them. He says, basically, there's a bunch of Gentiles, Christians, saying, oh, these Jews are so weak because they have these stupid rules that they have to follow and you have to keep kosher. It's like when I get made fun of because I have a gluten allergy. And, you know, I mean, this this is, you don't make fun of me, but you know what I mean? Like, it's one of those yeah. things like, I have to do this. I don't want to do this, but this is the thing. And you're like, oh my gosh, you're such a pain in the butt because you have to eat this certain way. And, you know, we many of us have experienced something like that. And the Gentiles are like, yeah, you 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 have to eat, you can't eat meat. Like, we're better than you. And the Jews are probably doing the opposite. I'm like, well, at least we're eating things that are clean. At least we're not defiling ourselves with this meat that's been offered to Zeus or whatever it is. And they're at each other's throats. And Paul says, and he says it point blank. He's like, look, if the Jewish people are, Jewish Christians are fasting from meat, they're doing it because they're trying to bring honor to God because of what they've been raised to believe from Leviticus. So stop making fun of them. And if the Gentiles are eating meat, it's because they actually have a freedom that they're actually not bound by those laws that the church has determined we don't have to be bound by. So stop making fun of them. If they eat meat, they're doing it for the Lord. If they're not eating meat, they're actually doing it for the Lord. This is not something worth a war or a fight or mockery. Get over yourselves so that we can actually deal with the real problems that we have in the church and in the world. There's a similar argument for which day they should be worshiping. This is a moment in time when the church has not, I think, definitively chosen that Sunday is the universal day of worship. So you still have Jewish Christians worshiping God on the Sabbath day and other Christians, Gentiles presumably, maybe who are worshiping on Sunday. And the church has not definitively stated that Sunday is the universal day for worship. And so Paul's like, stop fighting over this. You're fighting over which one of you thinks the better day for worship is. That's a dumb argument. If any of you live, you live for the Lord. I'm rooting this conversation, he says, back in the gospel. And if you're true to the gospel, if you believe in the gospel, you don't live for yourself and you don't die to yourself. And especially your brothers. I mean, again, if you if you put this in the context of even the modern world, and we talk, I ranted on this last week. There are so many problems in our culture. There are so many problems in Rome in the first century. There are so much, there's so much sin. There's so much death. There's so much darkness. And if you Christians are arguing over who is fasting from what foods on what day, my gosh, how do you stand any chance against the culture of death and Nero and persecution that is actually awaiting you? Right. And if you Catholics right. and you Christians are actually fighting over these silly, petty matters, and you are expending all of your energy on that, how on earth do you have anything to say to the rest of the culture? Right. This is where I see a direct connection with us right. and where that context actually matters. Because Paul's not are you saying, okay, there's immoral things and there's moral things. He's like, look, it's different takes on trying to do the thing that is going to glorify God. Right. And you both are doing that and you're making fun of each other. And if you, seriously, if you can't get past that, you're never going to evangelize the city of Rome. It's just not possible. Right. And I do think that's, in a lot of ways, where we are. Right. The world doesn't want to hear what we have to say if we're bickering with each other. And uh, honestly, the, the cool part about the, the, the day of the Lord, the meat, the not meat, the dietary yeah. stuff, is it gives us opportunity to learn how to forgive in matters that don't necessarily have yes. such great import, a personal import. Absolutely right. L like, wow, that's a good, that's a good tie-in. Because this is the hard mm. thing is that it, there, there's a lot of stuff that we need to, re like the weighty work of, of real, real deal forgiveness yeah. is hard to do. Yeah. And it's the most, literally, it is the most releasing thing that you mm. could possibly manage to do. Right. Like if you want to do like God forgives us easily in the confessional. 
You go to confession and you you know the pattern. Or if you haven't been to confession for a while, go, go to, to confession. confession. It's easy. It's like, yeah. forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been 60 years since my last confession. And these are the highlights. <laughs> and this is all that I can remember. You know, so, like, and then you say, wow, okay, great. And then you're like, I praise God. Like, and yeah. then the priest is sitting there praising God that right. you're back. It's right. not like, like, then God's praising and all the angels are dancing on ahead of a pin. I mean, like, they're, they're like doing it. Like, really heavy on Aquinas today. Dude, I've I been like it. I've been digging in on Aquinas like and Aristotle. I love I love philosophy and theology and stuff. But like, but so so we're there, and so that practice of learning how to forgive in even in cultural ways. Like now, this is hard because at the same time there are political movements that I hate and I and I cannot stand. I think it's okay to hate a movement, right? But and we have to love our brothers and sisters. That's exactly, and that's what we don't know how to separate. That's right. where we don't know how to make that distinction. I can hate abortion. Right. And I don't have to hate the woman who out of desperation went and got an abortion. In fact, my job is to love her more exactly. profoundly than ever. Exactly right. And that's exactly why Exactly right. That's why we say God that's why we're not trying to take anything from God. Our our yes. job is to do the best we can to please God. But not to wash over. Well, it's fine. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. It is deal. evil and it is judgments. sinful. But I can still love you. Right. That, and maybe and even more so, like when, you said. And this is the distinction that I make for, for penitence, mm. is there's a difference between making a judgment, which I say, this is wrong. Yeah, and which I, we're called to do. Yes. yes. And being making judgments and being judgy. <laughs> okay. Because as soon as I'm judgy, I'm condescending. Yeah. I, I discount the person, I, I stop, because condescension means this person is not worth acting towards. Right. Like, right. or if they're, if I'm going to act towards them, it's going to be to, to punish, Demean to or punish or bring vengeance upon. To be like God, to take on God's authority unto myself right. and deem what I think they are deserving of. Right. Why are people, like, and my, my favorite things that are being promoted right now are when somebody goes up to somebody else and says, let's have a conversation that's real. Not you are stupid. Right, right. Chant my thing. Which, Chant my thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which takes us to the gospel. Yes, and we cannot again context, context, context. We cannot <laughs> escape the context of where this comes from. <laughs> it should. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh. Um, our reading last week, we we can't separate this from the gospel reading from last week, which nope. it comes literally on the heels of, which was how to call out a fellow brother, sister in Christ who has sinned, who has done something. Here, Jesus says, is the way in which we ought to do it. Here's the way in which we should, like you just said, right. have a conversation, call someone out, have real holy fraternal correction. Right. And Jesus lays out how to do that. Peter then responds by saying, wait a second. I heard what you just, again, you can't take this in a vacuum. You can't take it in a void. Jesus just told you how to deal lovingly with the person who has sinned against you. And Peter's like, all right, hold on. Lord, if my brother sins against me, which you just told me how to deal with, how often am I supposed to do this? In other words, how often am I supposed to forgive him? Seven. And there was, but you know, there's a, um, this is interesting. And I, I, I take what you will from this. Peter probably is saying something more symbolic with his seven, but there was a rabbinic tradition. It shows up in the Talmud. I think it's in the Babylonian Talmud that uh, rabbis speculated that the magic number for forgiveness was three because that's the number that references God. And they said, well, three seems good. Like how many times are you supposed to forgive someone? Three. Because that's the number that reminds us of God, and that's pretty much a good cap. And so Peter, perhaps knowing this tradition, thinks, ah, I'm going to totally show Jesus how holy I am. Like, yeah, everybody says three. I'm going to say seven, which is the covenantal number. And like, what do you think about that, Jesus? See how much better I am than the rabbis? I totally got what you said. Well, now here's what's interesting, is if you if you actually look at the, um, at the, the particular word that's used. Yeah, yep, yep, it, which I have pulled up. Yep. Go for it. Eptakis. Wait, for what? For sevenfold. <laughs> uh, Seven times. Sevenfold. So Peter says, how much often must I forgive? Eptakis. Yeah, I, it's conjugated. Yes. Right. Yes. So th that's used in Leviticus more than anything else. What, what word is it? The seven? Eptakis. Yeah, seven times. Seven times. Seven, the seven, seven times. Sevenfold. Seven times. Sevenfold. Yep. And so is it really? Yeah, and and you know what it's referring in to the is 
the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times. Which is an atonement ceremony yeah, for sins. Yes, and he'll sprinkle some of it on the altar seven yes, times. Yes, no, seven times upon yes. him who is cleansed seven times with his finger. Because it's a his covenant. Hand, seven be, times. Because what is it for? It's to bring us back into covenant with God. So how do we atone for what we have done so as to right. bring ourselves back into covenant with our God? And so Peter's putting the pieces together. Right. I mean, I think Peter's actually getting to something. And he's like, oh, maybe we're like a new priesthood. And maybe this idea of atonement for sin. Like, I think there's something to what Peter is saying. Right. That makes me think Peter's sharper than we sometimes think Peter is. Well, yeah, I mean, because this is all he's done. And he's super, when as soon as Peter focuses, he really focuses. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And we're actually not too long after Peter made his great declaration that you were the Christ. It was only two chapters ago. And now we're in the the discourse of Jesus describing what that looks like. They're headed to Jerusalem. Right. And and so picking up on this and this purification, because we're also in the midst of this, like, uh, like this kind of framing from the Our Father. Yes, yes, yes. So if the Our Father is in Exodus prayer, then we have the which blood. makes it a forgiveness prayer. Right. Which the blood on the yeah. doorposts right. of the Levitical priesthoods who are taking that, bringing into family of God. He's yeah. like, he's like, do we do this for the family of God? Right. Which is, which is really an excellent question. Absolutely and right. Now, yeah. Now it's interesting because now we get into seven. Now, now here's what's interesting is we go back to Genesis four twenty four. Okay, hit me. No, go for it. Genesis four twenty four. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, Lamach. And, and well, no, before that. So the sevenfold, the very first yeah, time that's that it's what Lamach says about the guy he killed for looking at him wrong. No. So this is this All is right, interesting. Talk to me. Talk to me. It's actually God's protection upon Cain. If anybody goes after Cain, the uh, Lord himself will avenge him sevenfold. Which is Lamech's reference, yeah, but twist, twisted. Right. Obviously. So then Lamech says, oh, if if Cain is avenged sevenfold, sevenfold. then no, I want to be seventyfold. Seventy-sevenfold, isn't it? No, it's just seventyfold. Are you sure? Seventy-sevenfold. You're right. No, you're correct. Yeah, seventy-sevenfold. Because I do think Jesus is directly quoting what Lamech says. It's, I it's think so, exact. too. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Because we're going into the vengeance question and then self-protection. You can make—this goes back to something I said earlier, and this is why I make the case that I make. In Greek, it is unclear. It's a little bit blurry whether it's 77 times. And actually, I think it's ambiguous. It can either be rendered 77 times, which I think is what Lamech says, or seven times seven times, which brings, or 70, sorry, seven. 70 times seven. Which brings you a different number in conclusion. 49 versus 490. Aha. Why is 490 specific? Because that's the length of days between the last prophet and Jesus. No, it's the length of time between the exile the Babylonian exile and the release and the freedom from exile. It's what Daniel perceives when he prays in exile in Babylon, how long until we are set free, he is told 70 times seven years, set 490 years until you were set free, which is what makes me think that Jesus is speaking in terms of salvation history. I am bringing to a conclusion, to a, to a capstone, to a climax, all of salvation history. And I'm mentioning the year, which again, you can go either way, but I think the reference point from 490 would have been significant to the people because that's how long they were supposed to wait until God's forgiveness was manifest, until the debt was paid is literally what Daniel is told by the angel. Until the iniquity is paid for, debt is released and forgiveness of sins finally comes, which is what this passage is all about. I think that it's interesting that the the contrast, because yeah, yeah. yes, he's referencing history, but there's also a practical thing here. Yes, it's both. And be, be, it kind of, because, numbers symbolize numbers are real and literal, but they also symbolize things right. simultaneously. So, and and that's where where Peter is saying, like, okay, do I, you know, do I let God have His vengeance? Uh huh. Right. Because well, I think what he's saying, and what the rabbis were maybe saying, is at what point. Do I step back and allow God to just have vengeance on this person? Right, and and for and this is actually this is my meditation in it, mm. and it for what? Mm. Because yes, okay, Cain had his sin, and and God made him wander the earth, yeah, and and actually put a protection so that he would have a long period of time to that he had to wander yeah. to understand, maybe perhaps for his own conversion, yeah. 
Who knows? I hope so. I mean, I think intent, of heart. the intent of God. Whereas Lamech comes along and he says, well, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to call another word, which is going to be seven times 70. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and it's in that where he's, the God does not determine that upon him, but he determines that upon himself. And this brings us back to the whole point of Sirach, which is a recognition of how profound our own sin is, what you talked about in seminary. Right. And this is where the parable um, is so acutely focused on this. So Jesus says, okay, here's, I'll give you a parable. Well, the well let, heaven... let me, let me finish my idea oh, sorry, bef- sorry. Okay. before you go on, okay. which is, which is to say that when we're actually forgiving people, it's actually because of what they really did. It's not just, um, what do you mean? It, uh, it like lamb, like it's really ab- abhorrent to watch Lamech yeah. say, I'm going to do even more than yeah. what even God has done. Yeah, right. And so when you're looking upon him and you're saying, this is, this is, it, it's really disgusting. Yeah. And, and, and I make mm. a judgment of that and I'm mm. like, dude, you're going so far beyond. And, mm. and Jesus is saying to Peter, no, it's even when we look and, and the stuff that we see in front of us is absolutely disgusting. It's still then that we're called to forgive. And that's really the point that I was trying to make. Yeah, no, and I'm with you. And what he says in the parable, though, is that if right. you think about it, your stuff is probably worse yes. than what you're seeing in front of you. Yes. And that's the, but that requires the rec, the real recognition of what is before us. Right. Again, not the white, not the washing over and just pretending it doesn't exist and not the taking on the stance of God, which is to pour vengeance and damn someone to hell essentially. But I, I just want to point out the number. Yeah. 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 That's please, all please, I'm trying please. to get to because I think it's interesting <laughs> when Jesus gives this parable about the kingdom of heaven is like a King who decided to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began the accounting, the debtor was brought before him who had a huge amount Israel in the Exodus. They are in debt. They're enslaved. This is where they are. Since he had no way of paying it back, the master ordered him to be sold along with his wife, his children, and all his property in payment of the debt, which was the slavery in, in Egypt, which was brought because of real sin. They didn't end up in Egypt by accident. Right. They ended up in Egypt because of real sin, namely of brothers who hated and took vengeance on a brother that they didn't like and sold him to the Egyptians or to the, the, um, the Midian traders. And th- which brought about all this thing. But the number, yeah. so the NAB says a huge amount, uh-huh. which is lame. Um, yes. In the Greek, it says, uh, or in the, I think it's the RSV, it has a myriad of talents. Which, Myrion, which is 10,000. 10,000. It's the largest number in Greek. And a talent is, um, I think, about 6,000 is what the, a talent usually equals to. So it's $60 million. So I, it's it. This is where I bring up Jesus's hyperbole, and you have to laugh at it because you're like, this is where Jesus is is being hyperbolic. Because how on earth could this person have wound up with a debt of sixty million <laughs> million dollars? Which is Jesus's attempt of showing, do you have any idea the fault that you, what your sin actually causes in the world. Do you have any idea? It's unimaginable. That's why huge amount is actually almost a reasonable translation because it's unfathomable. Unfathomable amount would be more accurate. $60 million, which the king says, you know what? It's forgiven. The unfathomable consequence for what we've actually done this is why the hyperbole is useful in this point. He forgave it. He released it. The, redi- the the most unimaginable thing you could do, which I do think is an analogous way of retelling of God saying, I set the whole darn nation free from utter slavery in Egypt, and I brought the Egyptians with them, and I tried to win their hearts back, and they had even more debt than, Egypt, and than Israel had, perhaps, and I have released all all of it because I am a God of freedom and I am a God of release and of liberty and of mercy. And then I think in the analogy, Israel, who is the servant who had his debt freed has now found themselves indebted by somebody else who has a much smaller, I think it's a thousand dollars or something like that is the, the relationship between um, the debtor to the one who's been set free and he's like, no, I'm not. And he asks for mercy. He does the exact same thing, falls on his knees, has the same stance as the first person. And this person says, you wicked. Uh, no, he says, pay back what you owe. I'm not, I'm not going to forgive anything. I'm not going to release anything. Yeah, I don't care that my ridiculous, unimaginable debt was just set free. 
I'm going to go after yours because I want it. And you don't you dare. And there's a real injustice. There's real debt toward this guy, right? There's a real indebtedness, um, which needs to be reckoned. Because to not recognize the reality of the debt means the forgiveness of the debt would be meaningless. It doesn't matter. So he says, no, I recognize the real debt and I will not forgive it. I will not be merciful to it. To which the master then hears and he's like, what? Are you kidding me? You can't do, you didn't understand what I have done for you. So you know what? You're going to be go back in. You're going to become indebted. You're going to be handed over what? Until he should pay back the whole debt. When can you pay back the $60 million? Never. In other words, it's indefinite. You will always have to deal with that, which the church fathers always saw this as a reference to the eternity of hell, that that's the consequence if we actually fail to receive God's mercy and actually reflect it. If we become like God and take what is rightfully and only God's and apply it in vengeance to the world, Mm. we will go to hell. I don't know how you can get around that in this reading. Right. And that's what it seems to be suggesting. And that's why Jesus says, so will my heavenly father do to you unless you actually forgive, which is simply saying you have to reflect the God who made you, forgave you in the most unfathomable way possible. Because again, to go back to your seminary point, which I love, you didn't get out of anything. You didn't skirt out of anything. God cared for you and he set you free. So how dare you? take on the stance that is only to God and condemn another. Which this parable is a lot more powerful to me than I kind of remember it being when I got the numbers straight. (laughs) Right. Because then it kind of shows like the monumentalness of what he's actually saying. Oh, man. Amen. Wow, that's really powerful and beautiful. I I want to re-examine my life. So that I don't, uh, don't, so I don't live in this, the unforgivenesses of my heart, because I, I, I actually wanna, I actually wanna forgive my brother and and my brothers and sisters from my heart, because the truth is, is that like, I have been released, and right. and and I and it's I. It's the recognition that, that you didn't get out of anything. Right, I didn't get away from get, uh, get away, away with, with anything. That's I didn't that's get away with anything. Yeah. Like I, the the truth is, is that we we just got. We just got forgiven. Right. Yeah, I was about to say, like, we got lucky. No, we didn't get lucky. We got forgiven. That's a good That's a good line. Yeah. God bless you all. See you next week. Go fake to funk. Never. Bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.